what this thing here says, you know, and, but sometimes I think it might be helpful just to kind of fly over the landscape. On my way here this morning, I driving in, I came across, I was going through Q Road because I was avoiding tra uh, other spots, so I was coming up Q Road on the gravel there, and I got this very high spot, this corner, and I looked across this massive valley, and I thought, wow, perspective. And there's something about flying across the whole area of the scriptures and seeing it like that that I think is very helpful. So this morning, if you like to travel, and I, and, and I do, I like to see things, understand new places, understand and see God's world, what's going on. I hope you like to travel too because I want to take you on a trip with Jesus and John is going to be our travel guide. <laughs> and so um, going through uh, these, this book of the Bible this morning, I believe that Jesus wants us to see when we come to this Gospel of John, He wants us to come and see who He is and His work. And so I think this morning that's a valuable thing to do. In fact, it's necessary for Jesus to reveal Himself to us, to reveal His identity, and to reveal His ministry too. And if we don't see these two items then we miss out so much. If we don't know these two things, we cannot follow God personally and be saved ourselves. And we can also live for His honor and His glory rightly. And so what we want to do this morning is to take this trip through uh, the Gospel of John. Now, uh, when I take this tour through these chapters as we go, uh, we're going to see some, I hope, huge pieces, huge items that the Lord wants us to see. But I'm not going to talk, take the time for everyone. So there's lots of things that obviously I would be skipping. But God has put uh, some interesting things in this text. And oftentimes in our Bibles, we miss those points where Jesus says he, na he names names and places and when he moves from place to place. We tend to skip over those. And this morning on this trip... I want to highlight those to uh, some degree. Now, uh, the next slide is so, oh, I'm supposed to be the one to do it. <laughs> Forget this. Okay, so it was necessary for Jesus to reveal his identity and his ministry so that we can carry on this gospel until he comes back again. And so I'm inviting all of us to take this trip to come and see Jesus. Now, on this map, this is a map of the Holy Land, and you see that there's two seas here. There's the top little tiny one is the Sea of Galilee, and the bottom one, of course, is the Dead Sea. And in between there is this Jordan River, 70 miles long. Uh, on this, um, in this area, there are three regions in ancient Israel during Jesus' day. There is the Judea, which is up to just... Uh, above the top of the, uh, about a third way up the Jordan River is Judea. And then you run into Samaria, and it goes up into, as the, you see some red spots there, and there's a, a Jezreel Valley, and from above the Jezreel Valley is Galilee, all the way to the top of the map, kind of up there where Jordan, uh, King, uh, Mount Hermon would be. It's all Galilee region. And uh, that's where Jesus did most of his ministries. Now, Jerusalem, if you want to kind of get a picture of where Jerusalem is at, if you go to the top of the Dead Sea and straight left, you're going to find a little black dot there. That's Jerusalem. You can't see it clearly on this map. But then you go um, up to the Sea of Galilee, the bottom of the Sea of Galilee. You go left from there, you'll see kind of a bright red dot. A little bit near there is the city of Nazareth. And then just above Nazareth on that same, there's a couple of valleys of hills from one to the other. You'll go up 
and go down and up and down, and you'll come to the place which is Cana in Galilee. And then there is Capernaum, which will be a city on the very tip of the Sea of Galilee, the north side of the Sea of Galilee. So those are the three cities in the region. Um, and then there are some baptism sites in this region as well. The first site that you're going to come to of the baptism is about just a little bit above the Dead Sea uh, on the Jordan River, on the what is today Jordan side on the east side is where Jesus was baptized. Right down there close to the very bottom of the Jordan River. But then later on, John the Baptist is baptizing a little higher. Um, and uh, actually, see if I, I might have my, my thing might have a little, does that show up? Ah, here, how about that? Does that work? So right in, um, right here is a place where John the Baptist would have been. Jesus was baptized down here by John. Later on, John the Baptist is baptizing here and nearby Jesus as well. So what I want to do is um, uh, highlight for you some of these uh, things that Jesus is inviting us to go on his journey through this land. Let's take this journey. It's actually four months, the first four months of Jesus' ministry in the book of John. So come and see Jesus. Well, to start off, we find that Jesus in John chapter 1 is collecting his first disciples, and he's doing that at the Jordan River. And we see in John chapter 1, you look in your verses there, you can follow along. Verse 29, it says that the next day he saw Jesus coming to him, and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then uh, he points out that, uh, that this is the one that's been talking about. He says, I've been telling you about a guy who's coming who's greater than me. Well, this is him, and he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. An amazing thing he's saying here. And then he says down in verse 30, 36, he says the same thing again. The Lamb of God. This is the Lamb of God. We need to come and see Jesus as that person, the one and only, the unique thing about Jesus is that he is the only one who comes to be the sacrificial lamb to take away the sin of anybody in the world. There's nobody else anywhere in the history of mankind, no other religion anywhere that can make that claim. But it's what's being said about Jesus. And we find that when Jesus had the, when John had these two guys beside him in verse um, 36, and he says, hey, behold, the Lamb of God, Jesus was just walking by. These two disciples of John decided to go follow Jesus. And look what it says in John chapter 1. He says there that, that uh, Jesus turned and saw them following him, and he, and he said to them, What do you seek? And they said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? <laughs> what an interesting way. What do you seek? Well, where are you staying? <laughs> Did they really want to know where he was staying? They wanted to be with him. They wanted to follow him. And so he said to them, Come and you will see. Our Lord Jesus gives this invitation. Come, and you will see. He was inviting disciples to come and see who he was and what he was about. They needed to come and find out who is this Jesus. And this is the invitation that he gives us, and this is the invitation that Jesus is giving to the whole world. Come and see who I am. But uh, the question that we always have, I think, is, how are they going to do that? 
How are they going to be able to come and see Jesus? Well, we find that uh, after this, he begins to collect his disciples to come be with him. And we've already seen um, that this is a, uh, that, that he, has, <coughs> excuse me, I've turned too many pages on my sheet here. How about that? So when Jesus invited them to come, he says, I want you to come and see this Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But then he says, I want you to come and see who I am. So what does he do? The next thing he does is he goes to Cana in Galilee. And he moves from the Jordan River up to Cana, and he begins to be at this wedding feast, the celebration of a wedding. He changes the water into wine in this setting. After his uh, mother kind of started it, but he actually is the one that stepped into it. And it's an amazing thing that he does here because uh, he takes uh, these six water pots, about 120 gallons worth of water, and he changes it into wine. That's approximately... Uh, 2,000 four-ounce glasses. Now, more than likely, because the normal custom was to break it into three, you'd have um, two parts water and one part wine, that's like 6,000 four-ounce glasses that would be customary enough to, to last for days and days there. And it's amazing because it says then, look what it says there in verse 11. It says in verse 11, this beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and he manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Jesus wants us to come and see his glory. His glory, the magnificence of who he is. You see, I think that uh, this is something that we have to, to stop and think about because sometimes I think he can become so familiar to us, we don't recognize the incredible glory of Jesus. We need to be enthralled and thrilled with him again and again. He's not just a mere inspiration of good thoughts to help us through. He's the Lord of glory. He's not just about tweaking our existence to make it a little bit better. No, he comes from heaven where everything is exactly the way it needs to be, and he's setting up a kingdom one day that will be exactly the way it will, he wants it to be forever and ever. He is the king of glory, and his glory is absolutely profound from heaven itself. And he's just with his sign that he performs in changing the water to wine, just gives a brief glimpse of his glory, his magnificence. I think our, our world needs a bigger picture of Jesus. Jesus, in some ways, is too, too small and too tame and too unknown. We've got false ideas about him. We need to raise up the glory of Jesus. And then we find that what did Jesus do at this point? It says in verse 12 then that he goes uh, to Capernaum with his family. So he leaves Cana, goes out of the mountains down to the Sea of Galilee. He's there with his mother and his brothers and his disciples. They're there just a few days, and then he takes off and he heads to the Passover, probably getting provisions because the main road from north to south is going to come not in the mountains there where Cana and, and, uh, and Nazareth are, but you get to get out of that. You start in, in Capernaum, and then you can come right down the main travel route and get down to, to Jerusalem where he's going to go for the Passover. So he's heading and doing that. And he comes to Jerusalem, 
And in verse 13, we see the first thing he does is he clears out the money changers out of the temple. They were selling oxen and sheep and doves, it says there in verse 14. The people were exchanging the uh, Roman money for the Jewish money so they could actually offer these offerings in the temple. And uh, he makes a scourge of cords and he drives all these people out of the temple and people, what are you doing? Who, what, you have authority to do this? And he says, take these things away. And he says, stop making my father's house, my father's house, a place of business. My father's house? Jesus is claiming in that moment that that temple in Jerusalem, one of the major, major uh, uh, beautiful things in the world, edifices in the world, he says, this is my father's temple. Who is he claiming to be here? And so when it says then in the next verse 17 that his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me, they remembered that this applied to Jesus. Jesus has a zeal for his father. He wants to live for his father's honor and his father's glory. And his father is the Lord of heaven, the creator of all things. His zeal. But then it says after that, he says, very interestingly, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up again. And the Jews, it took 46 years to build this temple. Are you going to raise it up in three days? And he was speaking of the temple of his body and his disciples, it says in verse 22, they remembered that he was talking about his death and resurrection. Jesus is the one who's coming to die. He's the one who's going to rise again. The death and resurrection of Jesus, he was always thinking about and communicating. And then, in verse 23, it says that when he raised up from the dead, his disciples remembered these things. But it goes in verse 23 and tells us that while he was there in Jerusalem at the Passover, during that feast, many believed in his name, observing what? His signs, which he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all the men, he knew all men, and because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, he himself knew what was in man. He knew man, what they were like. He knew what people would try to do for him. So he didn't give himself over to them, but he was doing the signs that caused people to believe in him. Many people believing in him with his signs. And then in John chapter 3, what do we find? That uh, he's now, is he still in Jerusalem? Has he moved out of Jerusalem camping on the way back somewhere else in Judea somewhere? We don't know exactly for sure, except that at nighttime where he was with his disciples, all of a sudden Nicodemus shows up. And what does he do with Nicodemus? He says to this man who was a very holy, good, and godly man who knew the scriptures very well, who was a leader in all of Israel, he tells this guy, you must be born again. Because religion wasn't enough. You must be born again. And just like the wind blows, he says in verses 5 through 8, just like that, the Spirit of God is going to blow. Yeah, you've got to be born physically of the flesh, but you've got to be born spiritually. You've got to be born again. And when he didn't understand what that was about, he began to teach him more. And he says as he, um, he begins to clarify and the, the clarity was that uh, when you look at the passage, he says, you know, you should remember, Nicodemus, the serpent that was lifted up in the wilderness? You remember that, don't you, Nicodemus? 
when they were wandering through, my people were wandering through the desert for 40 years and they were rebelling against God and God sent these serpents to come and bite them. And when those serpents bit them, they were going to die. And they were all dying. They came, Moses, what are we going to do? God says, lift up and put a serpent, a bronze serpent on a pole and anybody when they get bit can look to that and they'll be saved. Now, the only reason they look to that serpent, that serpent, what would that represent in an Israeli Jew's mind? It would remind them of the Garden of Eden, wouldn't it? It would remind them of the, the sin that was killing them, the snake that was killing them, the thing that was bringing death to them, had to be put to death, had to be finished off. And so here the serpent was put up there, and just like that, he said, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in Him will have eternal life. Jesus becomes death on the cross for us. Jesus takes and nails all of our sin to the cross. And so Jesus in John 3.16 says, because of the serpent in the wilderness thing, he says, God's sin has only begotten son. Whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. You see, Jesus was clarifying the gospel message. Being born again means that we hear the Spirit speaking to our souls. And the wind is blowing in our whole hearts and our minds, and we think, man, I, we come to the point where we realize I'm going to die. I'm in danger without believing in Jesus. If you don't put your faith and trust in the one lifted up, then you die like those guys in the wilderness. If you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you have eternal life. He's clarifying the gospel and his message at this point. Oh, friends, we need to come and see this clear gospel, this key message. This is what the world needs to see. I was in places in India and in Kenya and in the Middle East this year where people don't know the gospel. One place I shared in Sunday school, three, uh, th this ministry is reaching seven different tribes of people, three million people in his region right there that need to know about Jesus. One of those that I didn't mention at the uh, Sunday school was the rat eaters. That's the name that they've been given because that's, they're so poor, they're not even considered in part of the caste system. And the government doesn't care for them, nobody cares, there's no, nobody's after them. They, they get this because when the, at the, this name, the rat eaters, because when the rice harvest is coming in, the water's out of the field, they go out to harvest it, the rats will run out and they'll catch them and eat them. <laughs> that's where they get their meat. And when they don't have that going on, they, what they do is the children go out and they, they don't have much clothing at all, but they'll go out in the mud fields and stuff and pick up uh, bugs and beetles and crayfish and things like that and eat those. That's what they do to get by. They're very poor people, and yet there's some who are coming to Jesus Christ, and there's churches being started among these people in that part of India. How exciting. They need to hear the clear gospel, that you don't follow the stuff of the Hindus all around. There's many gods, and they're all they're mean gods, and they're, they're angry gods. And, but to come to find Jesus Christ is what they need, and that's happening. Uh, clear gospel. But then we find in John chapter 3 that Jesus, he now moves from there down into the Jordan River again. And verse 22 through 24, it tells us that he's there um, baptizing. Uh, John, verse 23, was in Ainon near Salim because there's a whole lot of water there and people were coming to John to be baptized, but Jesus um, and his disciples were nearby. 
and Jesus is spending time with his disciples and doing ministry with his disciples. Now, these guys are only a few months in the Lord with him. <laughs> They've only been following him a few months. John, um, I need to get mother. I got two things that look just alike, so you know I'm going to get confused, right? This one I've got, it's got, um, so John is right here. There's a water a river way that comes out of Jordan and meets right here at the Jordan River, comes out of the countryside of Jordan. And this area here had a lot of water because of that, and so John the Baptist is baptizing there. Now, where's Jesus baptizing? He's baptizing down here. And you see this little uh, valley here, very steep, steep cliffs along here. The best way, if you're going to travel to go back to Galilee, is to go along the easy, flat area here and then get into this nice valley and then go up to say, so you can get to Capernaum. And that's what most everybody would do, especially if you're a Jew. Uh, that's what you would want to accomplish. But that's not what was happening here. We find that uh, Jesus is going to take his disciples and begin to show them something else that they needed to see. He's going to show them his ministry. And he's intentionally going to train his disciples to be disciple makers. And this is where I think that we in our churches need to focus more energy in this. I confess in my ministry I did not do this at the level when I was at Strasbourg that I needed to do. But Jesus was very intentional about this. Look what you find in chapter 4, John chapter 4. It starts off in those first verses that the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John. More disciples than John. A lot of people there with John, but down below there's more disciples. You see, John was saying, hey, the guy who I told you is greater than me, now he's at this point in his ministry saying, he's come, the Lamb of God's here, and he's around. Jesus and his group of people who were coming to be a disciple with him, they were saying, he was, they weren't saying that uh, he's somewhere... He's right here. This is, this is Jesus right here behind us. This is Jesus right here with us. This is Jesus. You can see him. He is the Lamb of God. Who can, so no wonder people were coming to Jesus, and he's doing miracles. You can imagine he's teaching. He's making disciples. He's sharing the clear gospel with them in this moment, and they're coming to him. But as they start to come to him, he's ministering, and people repenting, and people are coming to bow the knee to go into the water, and their lives are being changed. Jesus left then this flourishing ministry, and it says in these verses that even though this ministry of his was absolutely outpacing John the Baptist in big time, he's going to leave it. <laughs> A flourishing ministry. Why? Because the Jewish leaders heard how he was making and baptizing more? Was he trying to avoid comparisons? Was he trying to not entrust himself to the people again? Was he not wanting to be taken into custody? I think that they were engaged in doing this ministry, and he was wanting to take his disciples and train them. And so he's got them on the move again. These guys only a few months old in the Lord who are doing ministry how old in the Lord are we? <laughs> These guys are only a few months old in the Lord doing ministry. We're now going to go up, and he says, it says that he's taken them 
into this new land. And he's exposing his disciples to ministry in many regions. He went away, it says again, to Galilee. He's already been there once in Galilee, but he's going back again. Galilee was different than Jerusalem. Galilee was different than Judea and Samaria. In Judea, they were all Jews. In Samaria, they were Samaritans. They had a different kind of worship, a blend of Judaism and a blend of other pagan kinds of things. In Galilee, they were a mixture of Jews and Gentiles. Actually, on, on the east side of the Sea of Galilee, almost all Gentiles. On the other side, a mixture. And it was because this main highway that brought Gentiles through the land were all right there. And so there was this mixture of Jews and Gentiles in that region. It reminds us of Acts 1.8. When Jesus says, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. I think that our churches, we need to have this idea of training our disciples to do ministry in various locales and regions with different people groups. To be engaged in doing ministry right where we are, absolutely. We must do that. We must reach out right where we are. We have to. That's being a Christian. But Jesus was taking his disciples to places they hadn't been to and that they weren't comfortable with. I'm so pleased when I hear about the fact that you guys send teams into Kansas City. And you go to work with the, the church there. Fantastic. That's, 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 that's marvelous. And to work with uh, different ethnic groups all around, I'm glad that our district is doing that and working on that. Just developing ministry with Hispanics across our district in different places, with South Sudanese in Grand Island, with the Congolese in Kansas City and Lord Willing in Omaha and Lincoln and maybe uh, Columbus as well in the future, if this is in my mind. <laughs> if the Lord would begin to allow that to happen, with the Ukrainians that are coming in. And Lord willing, we can soon see a Ukrainian church beginning in Lincoln. That's Samaria. But he intentionally takes them through Samaria to expand their vision. You see, he, couldn't, he didn't go up the easy way. He took them up this valley into the middle here, and there's Sychar. Sychar, a little town in the middle of Samaria, right here, where Jacob's well is. He didn't have to. The scripture says he had to go there. He didn't have to go there. <laughs> Not by the easy way to travel. He had to go there because of a purpose that he had, an intentionality that he had. And as churches, I think we need to say, where, does, where do we have to go because God's calling us to step outside of where we know and where we're comfortable with so that we are engaged in something nearby that we must see and must be a part of. You know, this is where he's heading. And now he says, come and see this ministry that I have with the woman at the well. When we look at this ministry of the woman at the well, the story that comes up here at this point is quite amazing because at this, at this uh, juncture, uh, in this message, in the story, we see that um, he wants us to be with her and to see what he's doing with her, this personal evangelism kind of thing that he was doing. What do we need to learn about Jesus' ministry here? The fact that he, he goes there for a divine appointment. 
He goes there with an intentionality to have an evangelistic conversation. He goes there with the idea that he's going to try to engage with somebody who you don't normally want to talk to or engage with. Who is not customary. It's maybe uncomfortable for most. And that's what he was, Jesus would do. Because he would go connect that way. I'm, I'm challenged in this. Do I want to go meet with somebody that, that looks that much, thinks that much differently than me that would be, am I going to do that? So this last week, I dropped my kids off going back to the DR at the, at the airport, and I have to go to, by 5 o'clock, I'm in this breakfast at this uh, restaurant at a Perkins there or something, and I was trying to get something to eat so I could drive home, and, and I began a conversation with the lady who's my waitress <laughs> and get to pray with her. And I had to go to the bathroom, so I left my computer that I had open there on the table and my, and my cell phone, and I said to this this black guy who's there with me beside me, and I said, hey, would you watch my stuff? I didn't know him from Adam, but, uh, but you know what? He, he was like shocked that somebody else would trust him, an old white guy would trust him to watch his stuff. And then when I came back, you know, then you have this connection, right? Uh, you, you know, I, I heard recently a man who says, you know, every time I see somebody, I, I think, how can I bring up the gospel to them? How can I bring up a message to them? Just something. At the 4th of July celebration we had on our block in Lincoln, Nebraska, there was a guy who's a a pilot, um, my, my next-door neighbor lost his wife in a car accident, and they had four little children and, 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 and back in November, and so they'd been going through things. And his, but her brother and wife came from Omaha in the military, and they came to visit. We're sitting there in the yard beside each other, and we have this conversation. He says, we, we've never really gone to the church or anything. So I, we really haven't taught our kids or anything about the church, and, and uh, his kids are now in college age and just out. And they don't know anything about God, and yet he's thinking all these things. He's talked about Buddhism and Baha'i. He's been all over the world and stationed everywhere. And, he's, and we're having a conversation about Jesus and the Bible. He says, I'm coming to kind of realize that the Bible, he says, might be the, the true thing I need to look at. You know, if you don't stop and try to intentionally have a conversation with people, you'll never find out how many questions the people might be having and want to be asking. And Jesus was doing that with this lady. Now, in this situation, eventually, she comes to see that he uh, was the one who was going to give living water. He was doing personal evangelism with this person intentionally, but he wanted to give living water that would satisfy her soul and to believe and know that Jesus is the one that can do that is significant. And then he did this with, such, uh, with a sense of exposing sin and, but bringing grace. You know the conversation he says with her, he goes, uh, bring, go get your husband. Well, I don't have a husband. He goes, you're right, you don't have a husband. You've had four husbands, and the one you're living with now is not your husband. And she's taken aback. <laughs> Can you imagine having that kind of evangelistic conversation with somebody today? Is, isn't that pointed, a little bit pointed? We have in our mindsets most of the time in America that we would not offend. The biggest thing that we believe in is you do not offend somebody. <laughs> but Jesus was already showing his interest in talking with her and just meeting with her as a regular person. And in that, it led to the conversation of, what, tell me about your story. He, he is able to bring out her story and her issues. And people, sometimes you have to be able to say, this is wrong, it's a sin that you've got. But you know what? He did it with such grace, didn't he? Because I'm offering you living water. No matter what your sin situation is, I'm here talking to you. 
I'm here ministering with you. I'm here wanting to seek you out. I'm here not thrusting you away. I'm not here, uh, you know, separating myself from you. I'm here to engage with you and just to talk. And nobody else is, but I'm here. And no matter what your situation, your sin situation is, there's one who can give you living water, and that's what we bring. And I love that because the reality is when people deal with their real sin issue and they bring it to Jesus, then there's grace. And there's change that takes place. Change, real change that takes place. Sin and grace dealt with together. And then he says to her as she tries to change the subject off of her own self to talk about, well, where do you worship and stuff? And Jesus says it's not about where you worship. <laughs> but notice that he makes it clear that you must worship in spirit and in truth. Now, Jesus clarifies what he's talking about there. In verse 21, definitely it's not the place, but uh, spirit and truth, that's who God seeks. In verse 23 and 24, but I have to wonder, worshiping in spirit and truth, what do those words mean? Does that apply just to God or does that apply to us? And I think perhaps both. The word spirit is a little s. When you worship the Lord in the spirit, that means you worship the Lord. It's not, it's not the Holy Spirit that I necessarily am worshiping Him in. It's that I am worshiping with my spirit. Is my spirit engaged in worshiping the Lord? Because I have come to times when I've sung songs or I've heard a message or I'm listening to this or that or prayer, and my spirit is not engaged in that. You know what I mean, don't you? God is seeking us to have our spirits connected to Him. But He's also wanting to worship in truth. And I might say that it's impossible to worship Him rightly in our spirit if our spirit is dead. That's why we have to be born again by the Spirit, have His Spirit living within us so that now it is by the power of the Holy Spirit that we can actually engage our souls with the King of glory. But when we do that, we have to worship Him in truth. It's impossible to worship Him rightly if I'm not born again. But if I am born again, I have to worship Him in truth. Now, truth as to who God is, yes. Jesus clarified that salvation was not of the Samaritan's faith. It's of the Jews. It's truth. That's truth. That's where truth is found. There's only one way to worship. It's through Christ. But I think that truth also has to apply to us. Truth as to who I am. The woman couldn't change the subject or make worship about place and ritual. She had to get to the reality that I, if I'm going to worship Him, I must be true before God about who I am before Him that I am lost, that I am a sinner, that I have done what I want to do when I want to do it. And when I'm in that situation, I'm not, and try to worship, he's not going to pay attention to that. If I'm not honest with who I am, and my need to, re, to uh, repent and to turn to him, I have to worship in the truth of who I am as a sinner and not just come to him with partial allegiance or fake allegiance, but with a true loyalty to true admiration and love, not hypocrisy. And so the thing Jesus then makes a point about here is he says, and by the way then, if you want to worship like that, I'm here. The one that you're seeking, I am the one. I am that Messiah. 
so we can worship Jesus and we can worship in spirit and truth and be born again. And we need to see then the power of personal testimony. The power of personal testimony. This woman, what does she do? Verses 27 to 30, just as the disciples come back with the food from the town so that they could eat, she, she drops her water pot and runs into town. And she says to them, I think, she says to the men, I think I've found the one he knows everything about me. I think this might be the Christ. This might be the Messiah. And so they get up and they start to leave and come out to see Jesus. Meantime, Jesus is up there with his disciples. And she's got the power of her personal testimony. As she shares how she's come to know Jesus, it begins to spark an interest in the rest of the town. In the meantime, the disciples, who really didn't want to be there among these people anyway, they're saying, man, well, Jesus is with this woman. This seems a little awkward. But they never say it. They only think it, the Scripture says. It shows that they're only thinking, what's he doing with this woman? What's going on here? But then they say, well, uh, Jesus, are you hungry? Because <laughs> they brought the food back. Are you hungry? And he said, my food is to do the will of my Father who sent me, to do his work. And then he tells them, lift up your eyes and see the harvest. And when they lift up their eyes, what would they see? It's not a harvest that's four months from now. It's a harvest that's right now. Right now it is. And it's those guys coming out of the city, people you would never have thought would come to know Jesus, these Samaritans. Never would have thought that they would respond. How is that even possible? And they're coming out and they're seeing, they're seeing Jesus and it says then that he begins to, to minister to them, and they say, would you stay with us? And he stays with them two more days, and it says many believed in him. Amazing. Amazing. And his disciples are observing this and participating in this, and they're watching this, and they're seeing all that Jesus is doing, and it's like, wow. And their eyes are being opened. And the result of this work is amazing. They're gathering fruit, it says, for eternal life. In verse 36, and he, Jesus says, hey, you know, the sower and the reaper, both of them are going to rejoice in this. There's some who are actually sowing seed one time, and there's other times there's people who are, who are reaping it. And, and when I do ministry, guess what? I might be doing some part of the ministry, but you guys, as you support and pray for me, you are reaping in it as well. And somebody else is doing some other things that they're doing that's going to work on top of what I'm doing and what top of you're doing. And all of a sudden, we all rejoice together because God's doing His work in His harvest field. The harvest, though, is not a ways off. It's stuff that's happening right now. And people need to know Jesus right now. But we just have to have our eyes lifted up and say, who is it around us that needs Jesus? And I think it'd be good if every person in the church would just say, who are the people that are in my bailiwick, in my area that I can see that Jesus wants me to reach out to. Or maybe as you're traveling somewhere, maybe you're going to, uh, to a city and you're going to shop somewhere else. And so you go in there and you're walking through and you see somebody and you begin just to strike up a conversation with somebody. Uh, I've had conversations with people, I don't even know their language, in, in, <laughs> in, uh, in Lincoln. You go into a, a store and, and these people were out shopping this Arab couple and the man was trying to figure out what to do and I'm kind of listening in, I'm watching and stuff. I'm taking, I was doing Arab, uh, Arabic studies on uh, uh, Duolingo and uh, 
So I heard a couple of words, and I thought, well, I used a, a greeting, and then I, and I asked some, can, uh, they, they, the guy didn't know what, he didn't know how to help him. I said, I think they need this. Do you want this? And, you know, and stuff, and we started talking, and then, oh, yeah, thank you very much. And all of a sudden, we've got a few words between the man and I. His wife had no idea what was going on. But we start this conversation. I tell you, there's friends, there's people. One in 13 people in Lincoln, Nebraska are foreign-born. Over 120 different people groups in Lincoln, Nebraska. Over 100 different languages. That's why we have to think about who are we going to connect to. Because you see, we need to see the fruit that Jesus works among all people and that uh, this is his work he's given to us. It's interesting, at the end of the chapter 4, what does he do? He now moves on up. He's now in the Galilee. He's back into Cana again where he did the water and the wine. And at the end of the chapter, he says this is the second sign that he did to show his glory. Well, wait a minute. He's done a lot of others. But you see in John's book, he talked about the first one. It was in Cana. Now the second one here in Cana. But at this point, a, a guy who comes who's probably a Gentile shows up and says, I have a servant that's sick, or, or my son is sick. And he says, can you uh, help him? And uh, Jesus says there in, in that part, he says, because uh, the royal official says, come down before my child dies. And he says, go, your son lives. And the men believed him. And he heads back home. And as he's heading back to Capernaum, he gets partway there and his servants come out and they say, your son's better. He goes, when did he get better? Well, he told him it was the seventh hour or something. And he said, well, that's the same time when Jesus said that my son lives. And, and that man believed and his whole household. So it's interesting when you see this that you see that Jesus, the main people so far in this gospel, in the first four months of Jesus' ministry, he spoke with Nicodemus, a Jew, the Samaritan woman, this woman is Samaritan, and now he's spoken with this individual who is a Gentile. And as we read this text, we recognize that Jesus wants to reach those who are the Jews, the Samaritans, and the Gentiles. It's like Jesus is saying, listen, I spent my time with you in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, and now the Gentiles who are part of this place right there where the, na the main travel route goes to the rest of the world, he says, this is like Acts 1.8. And Jesus is intentionally telling his people, you must make disciples in all of these areas. And friends, this reminds me then that Jesus is inviting us, come and see who I am. See really who I am. And if we see that he's the son of God, who takes the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, if we see His zeal for the Father, we see that He's the Lord of glory, we see that He's got this true gospel <coughs> that can actually save people, and that He wants <coughs> to spend time with us, to minister with us, and He can take us brand new in Jesus <laughs> and use us in ministry, then really it's about then the next question of can we see what He's doing and can we join Him in making disciples of all the people? And this is what our churches must be doing and what we must be doing when we make disciples, sharing people how to share the gospel, how to take it to the next place and the next people. And we, when we as churches join together in this, that's powerful. That's powerful.
Let's bow in prayer. Father God, we come before you. We want to say thank you. That you would love us and call us to yourself. We get to be a, see who you were. That we could have somebody came and shared who you were, Lord Jesus. And you're an amazing God of glory. We've worshipped you well today. Oh, but Lord, there's so many people who don't have a clue as to who you are. They don't know you at all. And they don't know how to walk with you. They don't know that you are the lamb that would take away their sin, that would really deal with them, and they, they could find grace even though life is really broken for them. And like the Samaritan woman, she was thrilled to have met Jesus. And all those around her that she shared with were also thrilled, and many believed, Lord. We don't know who's all around his father who wants to believe and needs to believe. We don't know all of them, but Lord, help us to be intentional in engaging them. We ask for your blessing in Jesus' name.